All right, Capus, thank you again, brother, for leading worship through song. Um, as we get into it this morning, just I want to I want to give you a, a, a heads up as to next week. Next week is going to be very different. If you look down, so we're in John 7 today, right? We are at the concluding verses of John chapter 7. If you look down a little bit, or maybe if you have to turn one page to look at John 8, you're going to see there, in between the texts of John 7 and John 8, you're going to see this little note in brackets that says, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. So next week, we have to navigate what that means, right? So this week, as we conclude John 7, I'm not going to preach 753. That won't be involved in this sermon. Next week, as we go into 8 verses 1 through 11, we are going to actually spend a lot of time discussing why we aren't preaching through John 8, 1 through 11. Because it is not part of the earliest manuscripts, as the note says, and we need to discuss what that means. So this week, uh, I wanted to give you a heads up that that is what is coming next week, because I think in my life, as a believer in churches, I might have heard a sermon on a text like this from the book of Mark, maybe once. This is not a passage that is come to regularly. So next week, is going to be slightly different. And if you want to get a little head start on next week, you can start looking up some things about, um, about this passage and, and why this bracket is there um, and what that means for the canon and for preaching this text. It's going to be different. It's something I have never done. And it's going to be, well, an experience. So that's what's coming next week, just as a heads up. All right, John 7, 45 to 52 is our text this week. And I don't know if any of you have been following or heard of this event this ha that happened in um, Birmingham, England in December. I think it was December 6th. If you don't know, uh, abortion clinics in England, they have something called a buffer zone that surrounds them. So within this buffer zone, I don't know the amount of space that is makes this buffer zone, but within this buffer zone, there can be no protesters, nobody standing with signs within this buffer zone around the clinic, there can be no one approaching women, families entering the abortion clinic, it's basically like a safe space in which nobody can be standing and approaching and protesting. Um, but on December 6th, a woman was arrested for standing in the buffer zone, praying in her mind. She wasn't speaking. She wasn't talking to women going in and out. She had no sign. You can even go YouTube it. She's standing along a hedgerow, just standing there like this, praying. Eyes closed, praying. December 6th, she was arrested. She was arrested, booked on praying in her mind. Nothing, no, no, no protests, nothing. Arrested for standing there praying in her mind. Following that, uh, a Catholic priest, Sean Gao, I believe was his name, was arrested for the same thing. 
for standing in a buffer zone praying in his mind. Again, not talking to anybody. And just this past weekend, I believe it was Friday, maybe Thursday, both of them were um, cleared of all charges and, and set free. They were n nothing going forward in regards to processing them as breaking the law. But what we have here, right, and as what has been rightfully put forward by the media is an arrest for a thought crime, right? Arresting you for something you are thinking in your mind. Now, this has very little to do with my text today, but as we get into our text, especially these later verses, what we are going to see is this group of people who are willing to go to any means that they desire, regardless of the law, to stifle something they don't agree with. We have the beginnings of the kangaroo court that arrests Jesus, that puts Jesus to death. We see this coming to fruition in John 7, right? But we see a group willing to stifle, regardless of law, something they don't agree with. And just as people in England are being arrested for thought crimes thinking things in their mind and they go through this court process thankfully it wasn't quite a kangaroo court and they were allowed to they were cleared but we see this development of the kangaroo court providence and pride is the name of this sermon I was actually prepared when Monica texted me the other day for the title um, as I had been thinking through this passage today those are the two big themes that we are going to see throughout this passage. These last few verses of John 7 is God's providence and people's pride. And they come to clash. God's providence, people's pride. So let's pray. Or let's read the text and then pray. Sorry. So John 7, 45 to 52. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one has ever spoken like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law, they are accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, you'll recall him from John 3, we'll get there. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we walk through this text of John 7 this morning, may you lead us and guide us. May your word transform us. May your word breathe life into our hearts as you do every single day. Lead us. Be with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so John, 5, John 7. 45 to 52. Here's the sermon summary. As I said, we have these two themes that are clashing, God's providence and people's pride. The providential use of secondary means accomplishes the end that God desires. 
not what man desires. The providential use of secondary means accomplishes the ends that God desires and not what man desires. That desire is the glorification of himself and the eternal good of his people. And this includes using, not creating, not authoring, but using people's sin and pride to accomplish his goals, to accomplish his desire. So one more time, the providential use of secondary means accomplishes the ends that God desires and not what man desires. That desire is the glorification of himself and the eternal good of his people. And God uses, he does not author, he does not create, but he uses people's sin and pride to bring about his desire. Think of Isaiah 53. The suffering servant, right? This was something providentially laid out by God himself using wicked men to sacrifice the suffering servant, our great Savior. Think of Romans 8.28. Think of Joseph and the story of his life. The Old and New Testament is filled with this theme and we see that today in our text as we get deeper into it. So just to bit a quick context, recall that this is happening during the Feast of Booths, a fall harvest festival celebrating, commemorating the 40 years of wilderness wanderings in which they resided in tents. So the people of Israel are gathering here and remember they're in Jerusalem, they are camping in tents for this eight-day feast We are in the final day of this feast. Earlier, Jesus' brothers, his physical brothers, blood brothers, were (coughs) encouraging him to go. Go Go to the feast. Announce yourself. Make yourself known. Remember, Jesus said, no, I'm not going at this time. I will... It is not my time. I will go when I'm ready. He goes to the feast. He begins teaching in the temple. And where we are now is the conclusion. Actually, it's really not. Because I believe uh, chapter 8 is continuing on in this teaching. But Jesus is teaching in the temple. Remember, there's crowds all over the place. They are hearing him speak, hearing him talk. He has gone already through several uh, monologues teaching about himself. He has uh, heard and engaged with many of these people who are in the crowd. And so here we are. Some have come to believe in him. Some have recognized Jesus' divinity because of what he has taught, because of what he has done already, the signs he has already done. Some, however, are uh, rejecting him. Some, however, do not believe. And we have this division that is created amongst the crowds. Those who are following him, those who are supporting him, and those who think he is a mockery. Those who think he is not who he claims to be. And we have this conversation that happens here between the officers and the Pharisees and the high priests. Our first point this morning. The sovereignty and providence of God over and above the power of worldly authorities demonstrates his glory just as an artist possesses glory over his art. 
the sovereignty and providence of God over and above the power of worldly authorities demonstrates his glory just as an artist possesses glory over his art. Verses 45 to 46. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. This is not the first time we have heard such a proclamation from people. So we have this division that happens in verse 43. So there was a division among the people over him, right? Some were supporting, some were against, some were uh, antagonistic, some were following. And there were these, those, these people who wanted him to be arrested, but nobody lays his, their hands on him in verse 44. And so we get these officers. I believe this might be the first time we've encountered these officers in this text so far. These officers are temple guards. They're temple policemen. They're meant to keep the peace within the temple as events and things are happening. They're Levites, so they're not chief priests. Remember the Levites from, from way back in, in the first five books of the Old Testament? The Levites were temple officers, those who served around the temple, not doing the priestly work of, of Aaron's people, of the priest, but those who helped to manage the day-to-day workings of the temple. And so they have this, apparently they have this group that is deployed to be peacekeepers or guards within the, off, within the temple. And so these men have been deployed to arrest Jesus. The chief priests, the Pharisees, have sent these men, deployed them to arrest Christ. They fail to do so. Why? Because of their astonishment of who this man is. Recall what happened back in verse 15. The Jews marveled, saying, How is it this man has learning when he has never studied? This sounds a lot like what the officers are saying. No one has ever spoke like this man. They are astonished. They are surprised by who this man is, by what he is saying, what he has done, the miracles he has performed. They recognize something is different about him. And the chief priests, they push back against their failure to do so. They don't understand why it is that they failed to arrest him when he is standing there in the middle of the temple teaching. Now, as I said, the sovereignty and providence of God is on demonstration here. He's using second means to accomplish his will. What do I mean by secondary means? What I mean by secondary means is God is not physically sticking his hand down into creation and causing things to happen, but he is using things in creation to bring about his will. His will at this time is not for Jesus to be arrested and to be sacrificed. That will come, but now is not the time. So he is using these secondary means to accomplish his purposes. And here we have him using the officers to not bring about the arrest of Jesus at this time. But let us consider a few things here. Let us first consider the uniqueness of Jesus. As I've already mentioned, we have these, we have these uh, 
repetitive passages in which people, whether it's crowds, whether it's, whether it's the, the, the officers that are proclaiming that Jesus is he's different. There's something about this man that is different. The signs that he's performed, the walking on water, the feeding the fish, the turning the water into wine, the teaching, this prophetic ministry that he's doing and teaching the word of God. The prophet. Remember what he was called in 40 and 41. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this is really the prophet. Capital P, prophet. This is the Christ. They recognize something about him. What do they mean in 41 or 40 when he says the prophet? Capital P. Let's turn to Deuteronomy. Or I can turn there and you can listen if you'd like. Deuteronomy chapter 18. As we recall, we've been reading through the book of Hebrews. And we've already gotten to the portion of Hebrews in which the author is recording how Jesus is a greater, a greater Moses, a better Moses. We already got to the portion here in John 6 and 7 where Jesus says... That I am the greater Moses. That he has done better, more than what Moses has done. We're going to get to a point here where Jesus is discussing himself in comparison to Abraham. Here we have Moses. Chapter 18 of Deuteronomy, verse 15. Here is what Moses records in Deuteronomy of this conversation or of this, this, uh, this work that he has here. So, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you and from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. You see, the chief priests should have known this law or this, this text. The people know this text. That a prophet, that's why they use this as the prophet in, 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 in John 7... A prophet, one to come in the mold of Moses, like Moses, and it is to this prophet that they shall listen. And here he continues. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, <coughs> let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, <clears throat> they are right. In what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak them, speak to them all that I command him. What has been the refrain of Jesus throughout John 6 and John 7? That he has come to do his father's will, that he has come to obey what the father has commanded of him. He has come to speak and teach the words that God has told him to speak and teach. Perfect obedience, right? And whoever, John, uh, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 15, uh, 18 verse 19 to finish this portion. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name. 
I myself will require it of him. So you see, as these people are starting to make claims that this is the prophet, this isn't just like, oh yeah, he's a, he's a special teacher. There is an actual anchored meaning behind this, that he is the promised one who is to follow Moses in the mold of Moses, speaking the words of God to the people, and it is to him that they shall listen, and if they don't, it will be required of them. You see, the people recognize this. The officers know this. They maybe can't articulate it, we don't know, but they know that this man is different. This prophet. They also refer to him as the Christ. The Christ. What what does that mean? We use this term regularly. It's not Jesus' last name, but this is a term we use a lot, and it is one we define very little. It is a Messiah, okay? We use that term a lot, too. What does that mean? It's one we use a lot and we regularly don't define. The Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. This is a kingly term. You see, people could have been confused and referred to to David as a type of Christ. It is a kingly term pointing out, highlighting the anointed one. One. So why is it that we don't confuse David as the Christ? Well, recall what 2 Samuel 7 has for us. And 2 Samuel 7 is the covenant in which God made with David that one would sit on his throne forever. And we all know David died. We all know David is dead. But there is one to follow, like David, the anointed one, the Christ, who would sit on his throne for all of eternal, all of eternity. This is Jesus, a ruler of God's people. You see, the ruler, for those of you who like college football, like the Ohio State, Jesus is the ruler, singular, the kingly anointed one. So what are we beginning to see here in this ministry of Jesus? The uniqueness of Jesus. As we get closer to the sovereignty part that I was highlighting. We see the trifold office of our Lord and Savior. What do I mean by trifold office? Prophet, king, and priest. The uniqueness of our Savior. What these men recognize as being something special in this man. What are they seeing? They are seeing this, these offices. The prophet, the king, and the priest. They've already called him prophet and king. Basically when they use the word Christ. They're referring to him as these two offices. How is it that we see him then in this priestly line here? What does a priest do? As we've been reading through Hebrews, a priest steps into the temple. He interacts, engages with God. He is the intermediary, the intercessor, the go-between who makes a sacrifice for people unto God. And what has Jesus said of himself so far? Come to me and drink. Drink of me. Partake of me. Eat of me. What is that meaning? He is giving himself... To a people in exchange 
for restoration, in exchange for redemption, in exchange for hope, in exchange for eternal life. You see, the reason these officers and these people are starting to recognize Jesus' authority is because they are seeing these trifled offices play out in real time. They see this is the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. This is the one following in the mold of Jesus. This is the Christ, the anointed king following in the mold of David. This is the priest offering a sacrifice of himself, the bread and living water, for a people. You see, as the 1689 Second London Confession writes in chapter 8, it pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son, According to the covenant made between them both. To be what? To be the mediator between God and man. Priest. The prophet. Priest and king. The trifold offices. Head and savior of the church. The heir of all things. And judge of the world unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed. Think of Abraham and the promise there. And to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, glorified. You see, these witnesses who are seeing that he is different are seeing these trifold office, this trifold office come to life. They are seeing it happen in real time. They are recognizing, as John 14, 6 writes, that he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. They see this. They can't arrest him because they are astonished. They see this. They see him. As one theologian writes, of these three offices, they're not merely offices for the sake of theology, but they are offices meant for us. What do I mean by that? Well, we have a prophet. Why? For our ignorance. For our ignorance. We need a prophet to come and speak God's word so that we may know. And Jesus is that prophet. We need a priest for what? We need a priest for our alienation, our separation from God. A priest who is the intermediary and the intercessor. And we need a king. Why do we need a king? We need a king because of our inability to return to God. We need a king who will lead us there. And the officers recognize this. Do you recognize this? Do you recognize your need for a prophet? The prophet? Do you recognize your need to hear God's word? To strengthen your faith? To hear God's word if you have no faith? Do you recognize your need for a priest to go between? Because you cannot approach on your own as Moses recognized when he went. We cannot approach God alone on our own. Do you recognize your need for a king who can lead you in that path to God? Because Jesus is the only one. He is the unique And only to be redundant, the Savior. He is the way, 
and the truth and the life. And it is in his work that we find rest, we find hope, we find restoration. Getting back to God's sovereignty and providence here. Notice the inability. I've already kind of hinted at this, but notice the inability of those with tremendous power to arrest Jesus. These were the authorities at the time. Yes, the Romans were around, and yes, the Romans were handling political issues and were handling wartime issues, but who was handling the religious issues? Who was handling the day-to-day temple problems? It wasn't often the Romans unless it became big enough they needed to deal with. It was the priests, the Pharisees, the temple officers. And you notice here that these men cannot arrest him. Yes, the officers chose not to, but why was it that they chose not to? Because of God's providence in using these secondary means to bring about his will, right? Something about uh, Sproul, what's, the, what's the, the quote about him having control of every maverick molecule? There is no maverick molecule. Nothing is outside of God's sovereign control. If we want to look more, you can, I'm not going to read it for the sake of time, but the 1689 chapter 5 expresses these words, these, this theology well, but he uses secondary means to carry out his will. What does it mean? What do we mean when we talk about sovereignty and providence? Those terms are often held together, but they do not mean the same thing. His sovereignty, God's sovereignty like his decree, is something that he has declared to happen, and it happens. He has ordered and ordained such events. His providence is the way in which that sovereignty comes to pass. It is the way in which the decree comes to pass. It is how God acts in time using secondary means to make his will accomplished. And you see here, to God's glory... And for the good of the people, as Jesus' time and ministry wasn't to be completed here, he does not get arrested at this point. Those of you who know me know my love for Tolkien. And one of the Tolkien books I don't often reference, though I reference the Lord of the Rings all the time, is The Silmarillion. The Silmarillion was a book that Tolkien had been writing for years and years and years, and nobody ever wanted to publish it. It was too dense. It was a mythology. It wasn't like the Lord of the Rings. And it was something that they thought people would not want to read. It was a creation mythology. And in the very beginning of this book, we have Tolkien's version of the creation. He has these, this, this god figure, his name is Eru, and he creates these Ainur, or these Ainur are like these angelic beings, and he uses music to create the world. So you think of Genesis 1, right? God spoke and into, by his speaking, creation existed. And this, in Tolkien's mythology, it's singing. There's music, and by the music, things come into being. Things come into action. But there is a darkness within the music as one of these beings goes maverick. He goes rogue. 
And he interjects his own darkness into creation. And it is through his darkness that evil enters into the world. This is Tolkien's creation myth. But at the end, as this creation myth comes to pass, what Eru, the God figure, makes clear is that though this being entered into or entered darkness into this creation, it has not gone outside of the control of the God figure. And he will use the wickedness. He will use the darkness to bring about his purpose and his glory and his good. You see the echoes, right? You see the the shadow, the, the analogy that we have there of creation as wickedness tries to conquer goodness. But in God's sovereignty and providence, the wickedness of the Pharisees, the wickedness of the chief priests, cannot be accomplished without God's ordaining will. Jesus was not arrested. The the officers answered, no one has ever spoken like this. The uniqueness of Jesus, the providence of God to carry out his will. We see that. We see that, right? So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? Hopefully, it means comfort. It means comfort. I know for myself, over the past several weeks, it has felt like God's providence and sovereignty has been like skipped over us. Like it's, he's missed us. It has felt that way for me. As, as people leave, as these friends and people who have committed leave, it often feels like there is no control. But the reason we must hear God's word spoken to us is because we must be reminded of this ourselves, that God's sovereignty has not skipped over us. That his providence has not passed us by. For whatever reason, whatever the purpose is, this was God's plan for what was once New City Church and is now Christ Fellowship Baptist Church. Whatever the reason, this was the purpose. This was God's sovereignty and providence and he used People's failures, he used people's lack of responsibility, he used people's sin to bring us to this point and just plain failures at times. But, but, it was done for two reasons. As I said in the sermon summary, it was done for what? For his glory and for our good. And do we understand that? Heck no. I mean, I have no understanding of it at this minute. But I do know that it was done for his glory and our good. And our good does not always mean sunshine and butterflies. I'm not going to blow smoke here. Our good sometimes means what feels like bad. Just as Jesus' crucifixion, his torture and murder was our good. The ultimate of bad. 
used for our good. God's sovereignty and providence, his use of these means. And that leads us into point two, the pride of this title. Pride and presumption, point two. Pride and presumption are both blinding and destructive. Pride and presumption are both blinding and destructive, and yet they are still subordinate to God's will. Pride and presumption are both blinding and destructive, and yet still subordinate to God's will. Verses 47 to 49, the Pharisees answered them. Okay, so now the Pharisees are responding because of their lack of arrest, the lack of having Jesus in chains in front of them. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Do you hear the pride in their response? Are you so foolish that you've been blinded too? That's what they're saying. Are you so ignorant and blind that you do not see this? Have you been fooled? Have any of the authorities believed in him? You see, the pride just keeps getting better and better. They, 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 they first blast the officers, right? Are you so foolish? Then they double down. They say, look at us. We're the example. We're the exemplar here. Have any of us believed in him? They double down, but then they triple down. Verse 49. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. You see these people out in this temple who are, are just laymen. You see they're fools. And because their lack of knowledge of the law, they are damned because of it. They are condemned to hell because they don't know. You see the pride and the presumption on behalf of the chief priests and the Pharisees here? It's wild. Have you been so fooled by this man? Look at us. We don't believe in him. None of us are following him. None of us are saying these things. And all those people out there who are, they are doomed to hell because of it. Because of their ignorance. That's my paraphrase of what the Pharisees are saying to the, the officers here. You see the pride and presumption, right? They prop themselves up as the ones who have insight and authority. They prop themselves up as the ones who are the authoritative, insightful parties. And if one is to rebuff or to push back, that is, that's like rejecting the supreme master, right? How dare you reject what I've said? Pride establishes itself, or I'm sorry, pride establishes its possessor as savior. What are the chief priests and Pharisees here believing of themselves? They are believing of themselves that they are the saviors of Israel. That they are the ones who know. That they are the authority. That they are the ones who must be listened to. Because if you don't listen to what I say, you are condemned and doomed to hell. That's what the Pharisees are saying here. They are propping themselves up as the Savior. And this is true of not just the Pharisees and the chief priests, but anybody who holds such pride. They prop themselves up as the Savior. Pride makes 
its possessor believe they are the Savior. Listen to me and all will be good. Don't listen to me. You are condemned. And I've said this before, but I will say it again. We must recognize that these priests and Pharisees are the religious conservatives of their day. They are the religious conservatives of their day. We must be mindful of what we hold as closed-fisted and as what we hold as open-handed. My friend from college, John Hahn, he went off and did missions work for years and years and is still doing such. <clears throat> Once spoke at, at, at a little uh, worship gathering about closed-fisted and open-handed doctrines. There are things like the uniqueness of Christ that we cannot let go of. And several other things. That's just one example. But there are things like our belief in the end times that are open-handed that we can agree to disagree on and still fellowship. You see, we must be very wise in what we hold in these closed-fisted hands because if we hold the wrong things in the closed-fisted hands as the Pharisees do, we condemn ourselves. We condemn ourselves. Right defense of orthodoxy and orthopraxy, right? Proper doctrine, proper living is something we must do. But we don't want to be like the emperor who has no clothes. We don't want to be the ones who are condemning people because of some open-handed belief that is not heresy. That's fundamentalism. That's what fundamentalists are. And I do believe in many ways this can be, pride I mean to be specific, pride and presumption can be the greatest sin of Calvinists. It can be our most easy sin. Right? We believe, and I know I'm speaking from experience, that we have mastered God. By understanding Calvin's teachings, by understanding the Reformed confessions, it is so easy for us to believe that we have mastered God. Let us not hold to that. Let us, as I said in Sunday school last week, let us not prioritize knowledge at the forsaking of people. Let us love and let us hold orthodoxy. Let us do both things without the sin of pride and presumption. What is your heart posture today? I know it is so easy for us to fall into our theological worlds and believe that we just know. As I've said probably a million times and you're probably sick of me saying it, you go to Twitter right now and you look at many Reformed theologians on Twitter and you will be disgusted. Because of the pride of sin and presumption. 
We must hold firm to these orthodox and orthopraxy, this orthodox practice. But we can't be so ignorant to believe we are the masters. We cannot be the Pharisees who say, have any of us done this? You are doomed because you haven't listened to me. Now in regards to accepting Christ, that's a different story. But if we say that just because we want someone to be a five-point Calvinist, we've missed the boat. So what is your heart posture? What is your heart posture? And lastly, point three is the irony of this whole situation. The irony of this whole situation is that the Pharisees have condemned themselves instead of rightfully condemning the people in the temple. They have actually committed the crime that they are claiming other people have committed. Point three, pride causes one to forsake his own beliefs and convictions for the sake of maintaining control and authority. Pride causes one to forsake his own beliefs and convictions, his own moral code, moral compass, for the sake of maintaining control and authority. You see the irony of 49 and 51. This crowd that does not know the law is accursed. And here we have 51. Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? You see, the irony is they don't even follow their own law. You see, the irony is the religious authorities have forsaken their own law for the sake of this kangaroo court to bring about this stifling suppression of Jesus. So, verses 50 to 52. Nicodemus, who had gone before him, remember, this is the conversation with the Pharisees and the officers. Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, had gone, before, had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, the Pharisees, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now remember, we've met, John, or we've met Nicodemus. I preached this passage in John 3 many months ago. Jesus, uh, or Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, in the darkness of night. Remember, it, it was almost a very secretive meeting. Like he didn't want to be seen with Jesus, probably because of his position as a Pharisee, his authority as a religious authority. He didn't want to be seen knowing how the Pharisees felt. But he comes to Jesus at night, and he is asking a question. Remember, he asks Jesus in John 3 what it means to be reborn. What it means to be born again. And they have this conversation about the rebirth. But here Nicodemus now in this group, so he's still around. He is with the Pharisees and the chief priests. He is obviously involved in this conversation with the officers and their failure to arrest Jesus. But there's Nicodemus, there's something. He, we don't know whatever happens to Nicodemus if he is a believer. But there's clearly something happening in Nicodemus in which he is, his interest is piqued. His curiosity is piqued. He, he goes to Jesus in, night, in the night to ask a question. And here he is now sticking up for Jesus as this conversation goes on. 
And he asks the Pharisees, he, he steps in and he says, whoa, 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 whoa. Doesn't our law require us to have a hearing so we may learn what he's doing? Right? Pump the brakes, guys. We can't just arrest them and kill them. Our own law says we must have a hearing. Our own law says we must have a hearing. Again, just to point out the irony... The Pharisees condemn the people for not knowing the law, and here they are not knowing the law. He uses the law to highlight that their actions, their own actions, are unlawful. He uses their law to point out that they are the ones who are, in fact, not following the law. Who are the accursed ones here? Who are the ones condemned? They're condemning themselves. Again, the emperor has no clothes. They are being revealed to be hypocrites and failing to recognize their own doctrine, teaching, law. And what is their response? Again, out of their pride and presumption, their response is one of mockery and of one of ignorance our pride takes us to really strange places our pride takes us to really weird places as we seek to protect our own authorities right what do they do they imply that Nicodemus is biased they imply that he's got some kind of personal attachment to Jesus right are you from Galilee also what are you talking about they're implying that Nicodemus isn't thinking logically or clearly. And they are implying, too, here now, that he doesn't know the law. Search and see that what? That no prophet arises from Galilee. Their pride turns not into just logical conversation about doctrine and teaching. No, their pride and presumption leads to personal attack upon Nicodemus, who has stepped in to try and pull the reins back. Remember what happens in verse 28 of chapter 7? You know me. Jesus is talking. You know me. You know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And him you do not know. Recall that Jesus is not from Galilee. Remember Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And remember they point out in verse 42, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Their pride has led to their ignorance, which will lead to their downfall. You see, they attack Nicodemus. Uh, you're not... You don't get it. You're, you're, are you from Galilee? You think, you think that he's from Galilee? What do you mean? Look and see, no prophet comes from Galilee. And this whole time they have missed the fact Jesus is not from Galilee. He is from Bethlehem. But their pride has blinded them. Their pride has taken them and distracted them and brought them to this place in which at Finally and fully, when Christ or when God's sovereign time has arrived, they will put to death the Savior of the world. 
They will put to death the second one of the Trinity. They will put to death the God-man. You see, pride takes us to really strange places. Our hearts are subtly attracted to pride. We are drawn to pride. It is easy for us to fall into pride. But here's the final two sub-points. Pride comes before the fall, right? We know that. What does pride lead to? It leads to destruction. It leads to destruction. You will, one, become the emperor who has no clothes. You will be embarrassed. And if not in the earthly realm, in the earthly world, before Jesus returns, there will be destruction that comes later. Destruction, again, to the glory of God is what awaits those who do not escape from their pride. You see, as the Pharisees, as the chief priests do not recognize, are blinded by their pride to who Christ is, they have forsaken him for their own authority. They do not see him as the prophet. They see themselves as the prophet. They do not see him as the priest. They see themselves as the priest. They do not see him as king. They see themselves as king. Destruction awaits for those who want to usurp Christ. Whether that's the Pharisees or whether that's us, right? We think we are our own gods. New age religions, new age neo-paganism, other world religions. They think that they are gods, that they think they are priests. They think that they are the autonomous ruler of themselves with no governing authority over them. Pride comes before the fall and destruction to the glory of God is what awaits those who usurp Christ as king. And outside of Christ, guess what we have all done? We have usurped Christ as king. Pride is the center of all of it. Pride is the center of many of the sins that we partake. Pride is the center of what Adam and Eve partook of in Genesis 3. Pride has never escaped humanity ever since then. And that's the bad news. Destruction to the glory of God is what awaits those who do not abandon their pride and forsake their pride. As the Pharisees and the chief priests fail to do. The good news, the good news is that restoration to the glory of God is available. Destruction to the glory of God is what awaits those who do not forsake their pride, but restoration to the glory of God is what is available to those who forsake themselves and seek Jesus. You see, upon the cross, as the Pharisees and chief priests and even us ourselves partook of the murder and torture of Christ, upon that cross, as he took the nails and was hung up on that cross, upon himself were poured out upon him, upon Jesus, by God the Father, upon him was poured the punishment for pride and for all other sin of his people. The good news is, in Christ, 
Jesus has already taken upon himself that pride that we possess so that he may restore us as a priest to right relationship with him. And in recognizing our sin, in recognizing our failures and pride, in recognizing our need for a Savior, we turn, we repent, and we find rest. We no longer prop ourselves up as the authorities. We no longer keep doing, doing, doing. We no longer play God. We forsake ourselves. We forsake our sins. And as John writes here in chapter 7, as he writes on the last day of the feast when Jesus stood up and cries, he said, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And we hear rivers of living water. I think of, I think of Psalm 1 and the tree that is planted by living water that has sustenance and nourishment and growth and flourishing. And even if that flourishing means flourishment in the kingdom and not here on earth, at least we will have a flourishing that is better than any flourishing we can have here. That is the good news. Restoration to the glory of God and for our good is available in our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we are so easily sucked in to ourselves into our wants, into our needs. We are so easy sucked into our pride that, Lord, it is often deceptive how quickly we fall away. Lord, this morning, let us forsake our pride. Let us forsake our wisdom and knowledge for your glory for your praise and worship, for your wisdom. Lord, we thank you that you have used some of the darkest things in our history and our world to bring about your glory and our goodness. Though the death of our Savior was such a dark and twisted an evil time, you have used that for the good of your church. And that is the greatest example of Romans 8.28. So Lord, let us find rest in your providence and in your sovereignty and in your control. And let us find rest in the fact that nothing has gone outside of your control. And we have not been missed by you, that you have not skipped over us. So Lord, I guess to conclude, let us abandon our sin of pride and let us find rest in the promises that you have given to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.